When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. On this episode of the show, we talk Italian shotguns with Wes Lang, Giorgio Garini, and special guest Greg Elliott. Welcome to the show for episode number 91. is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance so when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that stand the test of time. They'll keep your feet dry, warm, comfortable. Whatever you need, Gumleaf has a boot for you. Head over to the newly redesigned GumleafUSA.com website and use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from Gumleaf USA. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns built and designed for the Upland Hunter. They have a wide variety and selection of shotguns from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Supreme Field Wing Shooter Elite and the Upland Ultralight Over-Unders. Head over to CZ-USA.com and check out their entire selection of shotguns. 
and by a new partner on the Project Dolphin Podcast, Turnbull Restoration, the most recognized name in antique and vintage firearm restoration, period correct metal finishes, and custom reproductions of iconic firearms. Turnbull has been dedicated to the faithful and accurate restoration of classic American shotguns, rifles, and handguns for over 35 years. You can learn more about them at TurnbullRestoration.com. We'll be talking more about them on upcoming episodes of the Project Upland podcast. For now, head over to TurnbullRestoration.com. And finally by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to Dakota283.com. Check out their kennels today. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Jim from way down in Louisiana. Jim left us a review on the iTunes podcast app. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast. Send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me an email at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, a couple of quick announcements. The public grouse tour is well underway. A handful of events have already taken place. I was at the Minneapolis event. There's quite a few more events through the rest of the month. Look those up. Get your tickets now before they sell out. Get out and see public grouse. We appreciate the support for not only our work, but that of backcountry hunters and anglers. And lastly, Pheasant Fest coming up this week. I'm leaving tomorrow, heading to Minneapolis. We'll be down at Pheasant Fest for the entire weekend. Great place to catch up with a lot of folks in the Upland community, including most of our partners on this show. Probably most, if not all of them, will be at Pheasant Fest. Great place to go and check out the products and talk to some really, really great people. The Project Upland crew will be at the Pheasants Forever Film Festival event tomorrow night in downtown Minneapolis. We are premiering a brand new film that has to do with border-to-border outfitters and Arizona quail hunting. Very excited about that. We hope to see people there. And if not tomorrow night, we'll see you at Pheasant Fest. And with that said, let's dive into today's show. This episode was recorded about a week ago. I took a trip down to Texas to meet up with the good people from Caesar Garini, Fab Arm, and Siren. And while I was there, I was lucky enough to sit down with Wes Lang, president of Caesar Garini USA, and Giorgio Garini, one of the owners of Caesar Garini, to talk about their shotguns, the work that they do, and everything that goes into what makes a Caesar Garini shotgun special and unique. Joining me on this episode was a familiar voice to the Project Upland podcast, my friend and shotgun editor to Project Upland magazine, Greg Elliott. We had an excellent conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And one quick reminder, my audio gear was a little bit temperamental on this episode. I don't know if it was from the plane ride down there or what, but it's not too bad. I will note that the first couple of times that Greg speaks up, he's going to be very quiet. His headset was not functioning properly. But shortly into the interview, we get that corrected so you can hear Greg Elliott and his excellent shotgun questions. With that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast, Greg Elliott, along with Wes Lang and Giorgio Garini of Caesar Garini. All 
right, gentlemen. Well, we will get started. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Project Upland podcast. We are coming to you today from Texas. My first trip to Texas. We're at a beautiful place in a beautiful setting, and we're talking to some very cool people that have a, a great story to share in the world of shotguns, and I'm excited to share that with everybody. We're going to do some introductions here to start, and I'm going to start to my right with a familiar voice to most listeners of the Project Upland podcast, my friend and uh, shotgun editor for Project Upland magazine, Greg Elliott. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And along with Greg, uh, who's, who's filling in as my, my co-host today, we have two folks from Caesar Garini and more. Uh, Wes, we'll start with you. A little bit of an intro and in what you do for Caesar Garini. I'm uh, president of Caesar Garini USA and uh, also FabArm USA and Siren, our three brands. And uh, I also work on quite a bit of the product management creation of new models and those type of things and a lot of marketing as well. Got it. And Giorgio? And me too. I'm a president of Cesar Guarini Italy and Fabam Italy. And uh, my brother and I, we manage the company, the both company, in the last 20 years when we bought with Cesar Guarini. And in the last 10 years when we took an equity stake and uh, total capital from Fabam. Yeah. Giorgio, I'd be curious to, I would love to get, I, we, we certainly don't have time to cover it all, but I know that you and your family have a, have a long history in, in gun making in, in Italy. And, and I would, I would love to, to sort of preface that, you know, briefly as, as much as we can and just talk a little bit about the, the history of gun making in Italy and how, and your family's involvement and kind of how you wound up where you are today. Well, uh, briefly because the, the story is, is yeah. very long, and it start when when started the business uh, approach in Italy after the Second World. You know? Most of the Italian gun company born at the end after the Second World War, you know? uh, and the last one, the latest one born, was around sixty sixty five. That is the very last one company, gun maker company, board. Cesar Guarini bought 20 years ago, as you know, uh, simply because my brother and I, uh, during the 2000, the year 2000, decided to, to split the business, to, to make, a, to find out a different, a different road compared to uh, when we was with our uncle, because my mother is a Rizzini, and we were for the first part of our life with uh, my uncle Rizzini. But in 2000, we decided to create this challenge uh, and uh, to find out the best solution for everybody. And today we are very proud because, as you know, we are the second largest group in Italy. With, uh, with the Guarini, we are also the second world exporter from Italy to U.S. So we have, uh, we have a we are we are pretty proud, that's for sure. Yeah, and yeah. we'll see what's happening for the future. But we have plenty of time. Life is good at the moment. Yeah, well, that's well, that's good to hear. It's it's certainly something of great interest to me, as people that listen to this podcast will be 
not surprised to know that I, of course, love shotguns. And, you know, I, one of the things I want to focus on, you mentioned a couple of times, Giorgio, is that Caesar Greeny has been around since the early 2000s. Wes talked a little bit about the history today. And myself included, I think there may be plenty of people out there that you look at the name Caesar Greeny and maybe you see an ad in a magazine. And because you pay so much respect to the history and tradition of gun making. And that that's the way that it looks and feels to me. And that's likely intentional on, on the part of Caesar Carini, but I almost assume that it's a company that's been around for such a long time. And by assuming that I actually, you actually miss out on one of the key pieces of Caesar Carini. And that is that while you pay respect to the tradition of gun making, if you assume that it's a company that's been around forever, you would be missing one of the most important parts about Caesar Greeny, and that is the use of modern technology and some of the tactics that you use to design and engineer your guns. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit. This is a typical inquiry that a lot of people are curious about this matter. Well, especially at the beginning, it's not easy if you want to launch a new brand in the marketplace. Uh, to be able to identify immediately that uh, you are a company come from Italy, okay? Because we are Italian, we cannot tell that we are from Germany or from France or from U.S., okay? Uh, in the same time, you want uh, absolutely that uh, your name, Guarini name, the family name, stay inside of the of the brand because uh, identify the, the family name inside of the brand is a plus, especially if you have a successful. So that's the reason why when after uh, a lot of uh, discussion, we decided to use uh, the family name plus one of the recognized name in the worldwide that had a tremendous success for Conquire. Now, a lot of country, you know, <laughs> conquire a lot of country. In the, in the past was with the word. Today, it's another kind of word, but yes. he conquired a lot of country, a lot of market. And uh, that's why we, 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 we create a, a liaison between uh, you know, Cesar Guarini and um, Cesar and Guarini. Yep. And that's it. That we arrive right now. <laughs> yeah. Most of the people recognize us. As a Guarini today, not not anymore with the Caesar Guarini. What's more, one and another important point that I'm I'm forgetting. Uh, we arrived uh, at the end at 2000. There was my uncle had a very big word inside of the family because everybody wanted to call with the same name Rizzini. Okay. Uh, probably you you didn't hear anything, but there is a confusion with the name because all of the brother are are Rizzini name, and everybody want to you know, to use that name, and they create a confusion. There is no identity identity very clear. So what we want to avoid is first of all, just to use the Guarini is better to avoid because if tomorrow morning uh, born a new company and the, the owners call Guarini. We cannot tell him, no, you cannot call Guarini. That is not, right. that is not good. No, uh, there is an, another interesting story in Italy, you remember, with uh, Beretta and Franco Beretta. So it's, it's a problem because uh, you have to understand 
the right of the, the family more later than you uh, on the other side uh, you have to respect also the company no? so that's why we associate two names and uh, we are continuing with this uh, approach yep. that's it I have a lot of people that used to ask me and still do um, who is which one is Caesar or who is Caesar Greeny <laughs> yeah does Caesar Greeny still make or how can I meet Caesar I said yeah <laughs> we made that up <laughs> <laughs> that part's made up <laughs> the Greeny part's not yeah. so made up but yeah, the Caesar thing we made that one up but you know uh, a brand like the old you know the old commercial for Smuckers you know with a name like Smuckers. It, and there's nothing wrong with Greeny, of course, Georgia. But with a name like Smuckers, it must be good, you know. And uh, brands take on their own identities, so you can almost write me Glock to the U.S. market was an awfully funny sounding name, you know. And uh, eventually, it becomes household, yep. you know. And so, um, if you're out to start a new company, you know he's probably a good lesson not to obsess too much because if you do well it'll become yep. uh, its own it, it takes on its own life right a brand takes on its own life yep. so. uh, Wes I'd like to you know I have the one of the Caesar Greeny catalogs in front of me here and on top of the catalog it says fine Italian shotguns designed for the American shooter which is which is very unique and I've I've learned from our conversations yesterday and today Caesar Greeny you know, sells guns in Europe and overseas. They also sell guns in America. I'd like you to speak to that line in particular. Well, um, going back many years, a lot of the European manufacturers, and this is a cultural difference or yeah, a bit of a cultural difference in, and also in, in, in manifests itself in shooting styles and, and kind of tastes and product, right? So, um, you would have manufacturers over in Europe that would struggle a little bit because, um, as an example, they would say, you know, this is how a target gun should be configured. And the stocks look like this, and the dimensions should be like this, and, and uh, this is a proper target gun or trap gun, skeet gun, sporting gun, or trap and skeet in the old days. And they would bring them over here, uh, and the guns wouldn't fit any of the American shooters, or they didn't like the stock configurations. They, they held the guns differently. They used a different stance. They, they shot a different discipline, actually. And uh, the reality of it is is that, you know, in the mind of the manufacturer in Italy or uh, some other European country, it's that's a target gun. Why do the Americans not like it? Yep. You know, that's impossible. You don't know what's good, maybe. And uh, the, the U.S. shooter uh, had a different definition. Um, by chance, you know, and not by chance, but uh, the British market and the U.S. market seem, especially in sporting clays, to mirror each other fairly closely. Yeah. Uh, kind of England being, you know, the birthplace more or less, and yeah. the tastes have always been pretty close. So, um, but that was different than, let's say, the continental target shooting, yep. right? Yeah. And which were defined in uh, going into much, much detail, but very high straight stocks with very wide rounded combs on them, and very radically uh, radius pistol grips that you know came down very steeply, and large pistol grips, and that was that was the style. But uh, and I'm just speaking of stocks, but there's you know the way barrels and you know all the other components as well, and that's boils down to kind of the 
styles and cultural differences between you know North America and Europe and I think some of it's bred out of the sports you play too because over there uh, they're shooting a completely different form of trap in general than we are I mean American trap is uniquely American for the most part uh, or was uh, and international trap bunker and everything is a completely different game as well and you were trying to sell a bunker gun to American trap shooter for a different sport. Yep. Now, whether you're aware enough to know that or not, you know, or care, I don't know. But that's the that's the way it was in the old days. And uh, uh, when we uh, twenty years ago uh, wanted to, the big challenge always were a lot of the European makers and smaller European makers. And by the definition of small, you couldn't get smaller than we were. Uh, with a blank piece of paper and, you know, wanting to, to, to create a, a gun company. and But the big prize is the U.S. market, obviously, because of just the size of, you know, of our marketplace for any type of firearm. And um, uh, I think uh, certainly from my perspective, that's the priority, but from Georgia's perspective as well, if we can conquer that, we can conquer the rest. You know, yep. you, you can take down the big guy, you can take all the, down the rest. So we've had a very uh, American market-centric approach to product management, like the stock configurations. We make lots of guns for our market, for example, that we don't sell anywhere else, or very few. Sure. You know, a few in Australia, a few in Canada, of course, but uh, like all the American track guns are unique to our marketplace. But even our sporting play guns, you know. Uh, the British picked them up and ran with them because they match perfectly. The European market has been coming around to more of our style of gun, say, for sporting clay. So the things we did in initially that helped us really be competitive here um, have turned out to become more or less the standard more internationally these days. So, yeah. Before we get too deep into this, I want to I just want you to touch on Fabarm and Siren as want to hit them all in this conversation. I'll give you a quick brief, yeah. you know, summary. Yep. Uh, Cause it's a longer story for sure. Yep. But, um, Fab Arm was a uh, major supplier for us and uh, kind of a supporter and mentor ownership of Fab Arm was. And uh, also the part of the ownership at the beginning. Yeah. Well, they had some stake in, uh, yeah. So, I mean, but all, overall it was, uh, it was a big component for us. Uh, Giorgio and his brother, and uh, he won't tell you this, but in the Valley, they're both very well liked universally with most of the, all the people in the Valley. And so when they see, I think a lot of people, everyone from the engravers to the other suppliers to other gun companies uh, who, you know, this it's, it's a relatively small community. They see these two young guys that everyone thinks are, you know, uh, kind of special and talented, you know, they'd love to see someone else come up, you know, because it hasn't been done in a long time. And so the amount of support we received um, in, in helping us get off the ground was tremendous. And uh, Fab Arm was a, a uh, major contributor and engaged with us. And as we grew, the ownership of Fab Arm, uh, there was two gentlemen that had major stakes in it. Uh, we're both getting... Uh, uh, easily to retirement age and we're looking to divest the company not necessarily to us but to you know uh, 
just get out and uh, as a game plan, and it wasn't a family like succession plan. So the uh, the the company uh, came to market, um, and uh, we at that point already had a new facility. We went from a rental facility for Greeny to a brand new factory, one of the first new factory buildings, literally for maybe over 50 years, huh, Giorgio? Because there's no, there's no property. I mean, try to get yeah. this property there. You know, it's a small, literally a little valley. And, you know, there's just no real estate that's horizontal anymore. Uh, so um, we, uh, we had this, you know, the situation where we're looking towards the future and uh, production of certain things and, and if we were to grow past this building what would we do you know and uh, would we would have to duplicate things that FabArm produced for us and uh, so you start looking at the overall idea and maybe it's better just to acquire that company and uh, what that allowed us to do is have a very diverse manufacturing capabilities. Um, it allowed us to internalize immediately almost everything we were doing outside of uh, machining of wood, which is a little bit different from everything else because you have to have it in a different building completely. You have to, have to do your own facility, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's just not practical to always do that. A lot of manufacturers uh, will go that route. Uh, we source all our own wood, of course. We do other processes with the wood, but uh, to get into a large scale that we need of production of wood, you have to have essentially an isolated factory for that. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's better to let someone do that for you, right? So, yeah. but everything else outside of little parts like springs and things, we manufacture in house. We're one of uh, now, for example, uh, a big pride uh, in our manufacturing is barrel manufacturing. And we're one of three companies that actually internally manufacture barrels in Italy. And uh, our technology and our process and um, uh, our final product, I think, is one of the very finest barrels. You know, it gives us the capability of making the finest barrels. Yep. And that, for me, and I'm sorry, George, just, but it, it, it um, can be defined for me, you can put it into the simplest terms, uh, if you can make a barrel light, as we talked about earlier, if you make a barrel light, you can make anything, right? So it's hard to make them light, easy to make them heavy. Yep. Takes accuracy, precision, inevitably a lot of investment to get there to make a light barrel. And uh, uh, I think we're, we're, we're very proud of our capabilities. Hard thing to make barrels because even regulation is a super challenge to have someone that can uh, regulate barrels. It can be 15 years of experience before they're really right at doing it, yep. you know. And uh, to prove that out, we always test all our guns. So, you know, um, it's a, a production that also we prove before it goes out. And to have someone that's talented enough to do that, they're not growing on trees. There's only a handful all, in all of Italy of people that can accomplish that today. Mm. So. so is that something that uh, the so you, because you have the ability to build those in-house, um, what other features are you adding to those barrels that are setting sort of the greeny barrels apart from um, what the you know people who are buying them from a third party? Well, um, 
obviously we have complete control. One of the things that, you know, just these are generalizations, but we have complete control of quality control. That's so we can make it as good as the, the equipment, you know, so we don't have to rely on a vendor to, to do those kind of things. Um, there's a lot of nuances about barrel making. It also gives us the flexibility of making different styles of barrel because we have our own internal production. So you have this ability to be able to make a prototype, for example, right? Where but there are two main important points uh, in order to have uh, the barrel production inside. First of all, we are the other. I told you before there are three company makes barrel inside in Italy. One is. Uh, Barrett, as you know, the second one is Barazzi, and the third one is Faber. Barazzi made the gun, the barrel themselves, and just for a few gun for target gun. Beretta forged steel barrel for all the entire production, budget production gun. Only for the series SO line, they drill all the tube. The other one are completely. Uh, yeah, um, uh, and Faber absolutely drill the barrel. So why is better to have a drill barrel? Because uh, you know better than me that if you do not forge steel, you do not create the tension inside of the material. You can make uh, what you want in terms of case hardening, reduce the fraction. You if you cut. The, 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 the fiber of the material change everything. So it's important for sure for the for the prototype. We can decide tomorrow makes a prototype. But think about it only for the tribor barrel or maxis bore barrel. If you do not have a production barrel inside, can you do that? The tribor barrel in outsourcing? You patented this one system. Faber patented twenty years ago this system. Okay, or more than 20 years ago. And, and, and Guarini makes uh, Maxis bore uh, 12 years ago. Can you do that in outsourcing? No. That's the reason why the rest of the gun company do not have a special bore on, their, on the smooth bore because they cannot do that inside. And they have to buy exactly what the market offers. Except for Beretta, for example. They, so what is the tri bore? The what is a tapered bore, you know. What are those offers? So the idea between any type of, uh, in a general category of a tapered bore, and uh, years ago I had experience of doing that in a, in for a company that uh, we made uh, kind of like a Briley type company, where, you know, we backboard. And, and uh, uh, it, it's a, so there, this gets a little technical, but if you enlarge a bore, uh, you are um, shortening the shot string. So the, the first pellet to the last pellet gets compressed. Um, when you tighten a bore, it um, increases the distance from the front pellet to the last, from mm. the last pellet. Uh, when you take a barrel and backboard that barrel, that means opening up the inside diameter, which is not a great way of doing it because you're thinning out the walls of the chokes, I mean the barrel. So that's a, you know, that's something you want to be careful with, but that's what, a lot of companies did in the old days. Um, as you enlarge the barrel diameter, you tend to re reduce a little bit of the recoil, a little less pressure spike, and going into it. Same thing as the forcing cone, going into a tighter bore. And um, uh, so at the end of the day, uh, 
in an effort to try to get the best of both worlds. Um, for Let me back up a little bit. So for trap shooting, you can make an argument from a physics standpoint that a target going straight away from you, it would be... Uh, it would behoove you to have all the the pellets traveling in a much tighter, compressed, almost two-dimensional plane as it passes the target, increasing your opportunity for making impact. On a crossing target, remember the target is moving as the first pellet intersects the target. That target will move X amount based on speed and angle until the last pellet passes by. So as that target tends to move forward, you have more opportunities for pellets to make contact if the two are intersecting, like mm-hmm. like two cars speeding through uh, an intersection, right? Versus a car, another car driving up behind and rear-ending you. Yep. Trap, right? Yep. So you can make the argument that there's advantages to one to and the other. And then it gets even more in-depth where um, certain types of of ammunition can perform better with one or the other. And that gets into extremes like fiber wads and, you know, won't work well in a larger bore diameter. So the the process of trying to make a tapered bore is to give you all the advantages of a larger bore along with the velocity and, and shot strings uh, incorporated with the, the tighter bores and to additionally uh, work in conjunction with choke systems to, to provide you know, uh, like optimum ballistics. Yep. And uh, it's a complicated thing to do. Uh, it's not a simple process um, as far as manufacturing goes. You know, it's just not as easy as making one straight pipe. Sure. So yep. uh, that included with long forcing cones, you know, and longer tubes were all attempts to, you know, kind of get the nth degree of performance out of a gun system. And uh, today, uh, even hunters can take great advantage of that where they're going to, you know, I mean, because that's a lot of that. It's like the racing in the car you buy at the dealership. You know, it's uh, if you go buy a performance car at the dealership to drive around every day, it's probably benefited from the racing program. Mm. And the hunting gun benefits from our racing program, which is the competition gun. Yeah. Yeah. When, and what is the regulating? What is that? What, so what? I'm not, what does that process mean? I mean, I, I kind of know. Do you regulate for for point of impact and also certain types of ammunition? And what goes into so, that so, process? So uh, barrel regulation is uh, the concept's pretty free, straightforward, right? So the barrel regulation is uh, the point of impact. And just for a second, uh, think about the point of impact like shooting a bullet, one bullet. Okay as it relates to the sighting plane, right? Which in a rifle would be the rifle sights, but in a shotgun would be the rim of the shotgun these days, right? So you have to say if the rib is aimed at a particular target, right? With a consistent method, yep. not looking down on the rib, but looking flat on the rib. If it's aimed at a target, those barrels, the center of the point of impact on those barrels, there's two con- big issues. One of them has to be that they impact close to where you're aiming, right? Or, you know, as close as possible. You could have how a shotgun uh, test for regulation, quality control test works, is generally there's a, let's say, a 30-inch pattern, right, that's shot out of X difference, in, in our case, 30 meters. But 
is a 30-inch pattern. There's a, a, a quality control ring, like a bullseye. And when the gun is fired, sighted in dead on, you know, you sighted it dead on in the target. When it's fired, we determine the center of the point of impact, and then we measure them like bullet holes, right? So the, the size of your quality control circle to the center of the target is your criteria for center for quality control. Mm. You know, the, the smaller the circle, the, the, the much more stringent you are about it, the larger the circle, the less stringent you would be about it. And additionally, it's not just whether you're in that circle, right? So if, let's say, I just pick any number, 10, 10 inches, yep. right? Total circle, diameter, not radius. But if you have one point of impact on the right-hand side at almost the five inches from the center, right, which would be the five-inch radius, but the other one's five inches to the left, you have almost a 10-inch deviation between the two. Not good, right? So deviation and point of impact. And why does it take 15 years for somebody to see this? Essentially, as antiquated as it may sound, regulation is done by eye, by the reflection of light through the barrels. So you have somebody looking through the gun barrels from the chamber end towards the muzzle end and looking at the concentric rings of reflection inside the barrel and determining whether that thing will hit as accurately as your average 22 rifle at 30 meters hmm. by eye on barrel after barrel after barrel for thousands of barrels. And uh, now you understand why it's 15 years of yeah. practicing before you become, yeah, it's you know, worth a darn. Sure. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, a, it's amazing how it's difficult making a barrel. Yeah. Because also, if you make everything in, in a correct way, uh, following the tolerances, following everything, it's enough that when you put the barrel to the, for the soldering process inside of the varnish, you move uh, because, uh, you know, Probably there is uh, some peaks uh, we could show more this morning. But the barrel come inside five barrels per time uh, on the rag like this. And, 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 um, and the barrel are moved automatically inside of the furnace. It's enough that you put the barrel and uh, the, the, the part of the metal keep the barrel in this position for example two piece no it's enough that for 30 inch you need to have in this position 32 it's enough you have to move for example two two centimeter up it's enough that you do not do that yep. <laughs> the barrel is 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 not good barrel yep. so it's it's a the, the, the equilibrium there is very very difficult you could talk for hours on just barrel yep. regulation, yep. and I know you're interested in any more topics. Uh, well, but barrels can vary, you know, like almost snake as they're, mm. if it's, they're laid up in certain ways. And a, these guys with their eye can... There is a tension inside understand. of the material. It's unbelievable. Hmm. You buy a, a batch of material, even though you order a special... Uh, uh, inquire with the material, with kind of material, percentage of nickel, percentage of molybdene, or whatever you want, the chrome plate, doesn't matter. We arrive in, in the perfect fork, but when arrive, usually we, we keep one ear 
one year outside the material under the the weather just because to receive the sun water yep. cold hot elements element because uh, reduce the tension inside change a lot trust me change a lot hmm. well, it's I a think there's there's a so a common complaint i hear with other guns is that uh over and unders um in the price categories that you guys are in, is that the guns aren't regulated really well. So I think it's a real advantage that your guns, uh, and I know that some of these other makers, uh, they don't seem to have the same type of quality control and regulate, they're not regulating to the degree you are. And it seems like a real advantage of your guns is hearing what you yeah. put into them. First of all, most of the guns are never tested. And nobody know exactly, and nobody are really understand or capable to understand where is the point of impact exactly of the gun. Okay, and uh, one more one more point is that usually the only gun that have some point of impact test are the shooting gun. So the shooting gun community is not so famous, is not so popular. There are there is not so many company. You Maybe. buy the gun for 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 such level like this, so you already understand why, right? Yep. It's something you have to put a lot of commitment into. But you know, when you talk about manufacturing and you talk about all this technology and steel and everything, yep. it's one of the which one of those things that makes double gun manufacturing, you know, kind of the romantic side of a little bit that a lot of human, you know skill and passion still has to go in that and there is not a i mean i'm sure if you got the aerospace industry involved or something but there is really not a higher tech solution to what we're talking about yep. you know and uh the, the 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 final soldering after regulation of the barrel and and uh the rest of it all goes up it's very high tech but that's still the human eye Yep. You know, a guy and the machine you use to adjust everything is how old is the machine for regulation? It's probably uh, there was a peaks seventy five hundred years old, yeah. right? And you can't you, buy them anymore. You right? need to see the shadow inside, yeah. and with the shadow you understand. But the shadow is very, very precise. Eh? Huh. And he holds them up to the window, right? Like yeah, he holds yeah. a barrel. Exactly. I've seen I've seen pictures of the guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you see exactly with the shadow. With experience, if you have to touch the tubes first and barrel just in case later. And remember that one another important point that nobody knows, soldering a barrel up 71 centimeter is not a big deal. Uh, everybody are able to solder to and, and have a good quality barrel. But when you start to solder the barrel 26, sorry, uh, 30 inch, 76 centimeter, 30 inch, or 32 inch, forget it, 34 inch, change a word. Eh? So as, as the barrels lengthen, yeah. the skill required to... Well, there's two, there's two components to that, just to elaborate on yeah. what George said. The longer and the smaller, the more difficult. Smaller meaning like gauge? 32 inch, 410 is the most difficult. Gotcha. Probably more than the 34 inch, 12 gauge. Because it is a the slighter that degree. nobody made until we made it in production. And it was one that took a little bit of, little bit of real trial and error to get that correct. When you shot with the barrel with the speedy camera, it's true. You can see the the barrel that makes this movement, the tubes. Eh? Oh, so the barrel the barrel's flexing. Oh, and you can see. 
it's unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Yeah, there's a so there's five centimeter more change a lot. Sure. Okay. So, and the longer that tube gets, the more those waves have more, and they can affect. More. Absolutely. But not only that, but the ability to see the 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 correctly, you know, because you're looking down a little small tube. Not only that, but soldering up a little small tube without getting any variations because it's not as rigid because it's a smaller tube, mm. right? So the soldering process is much more delicate to make sure we don't get any variances in the process. Yep. Uh, and so from a production standpoint, the challenge is extreme with a 32-inch 410 being on one end of the spectrum and super easy with a 26-inch 12-gauge. Yep. Whiplash, call in English. Whiplash. Whiplash. Yeah. Yeah. The whiplash you, you have, especially with a 34-inch. 34-inch, for example, without the side rib. I okay. sent you the yeah. the video. What it happened? It's unbelievable. Yeah, that's another topic for another day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what barrels do when you fire them? And the the industry solutions to correct for that. Uh, I had no idea until we started experimenting, and then we then it all became clear why this one makes a step rib or a ramp rib does not make a flat rib or this because what a barrel does under recoil. You know, it's it's nothing to have a barrel shoot 30 inches low from where it should regulate because of that harmonic, really, you know, movement wow. of the barrel, yeah. and that of course varies whether it's a over and under or a single barrel. Single barrel is much more flexible than two soldered together; mm -hmm. it's much stronger structure. Uh, so, and the longer you make them, the thinner you make. It, it gets extremely complicated because you can regulate it. But if you have too much flexibility in the structure, then you get a different point of impact. But it'll be consistently different. It'll be generally lower by X amount. Yeah. You know, and you know, the, how do you? What do you do there then? You know, you have to either make it more rigid, or you have to change the point of impact by changing the angle of the rib or something. It, it's there's always always the general rule is when you talk about manufacturing and especially double guns, it's always more difficult than it yeah. looks. It seems simple. You yeah. know, oh, why yeah. don't you just do yeah. this? Why don't you just do that? No, becomes there's layers of issues. A lot of times double guns are referred to in that sense that they're such it's such a simple, elegant design, right? But but clearly still one of the most technically challenging. Yeah. In it, yep. in its in its design and by its definition, still one of the most a lot of moving parts. We have tolerances on double guns that stack up all the way through. I look at it like a circle, right? So from the firing mechanism through the the and all the way back. It's uh, it's it's a very complicated product to manufacture, uh, and all designs have their own. I'm not poo-pooing any other design. We make lots of other designs, you know, repeaters and everything, and they all have their challenges for sure. Yep. But double guns are notoriously uh, famous for, you know, having those challenges, and and uh, probably the one thing is it doesn't. Tolerate tolerances, yeah. You know where a semi-auto demands open tolerances. You know, uh, double guns demand the lack of a sloppy tolerance. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, a decent segue. It's something I don't want to overlook about the conversation that we're having. And, I, and Greg and I want to talk about some specific guns and stuff. But before we do, I want to talk about a little bit about what makes a Caesar Greeny a Caesar Greeny. We've, we've touched on it a lot in our, in our conversation up to this point, but you know, when I look at a Caesar Greeny, I see 
there, there are a few things that stand out. And again, I'm referring to a lot of times I'm seeing, you know, ads in magazines or a friend of mine that I grouse hunt with has a Caesar green. And I, you know, I always see, seem to always see stunning wood. You see beautiful engraving. You see these fine details that I, me personally have associated with what I see as a, as a beautiful gun. And that's, that's what catches my eye. But underneath all of that, that's all intentional. That's all important. Underneath that is a very intentionally designed and developed gun. And it's again, going back to this Caesar Greeny is a, is a modern company in the sense that you use very advanced technology to develop these guns that have very little tolerances in parts that wear and the, the pieces that need to come together for very specific reasons. I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for what you're doing because you, you guys do build beautiful Thank you. guns. I really appreciate <laughs> <laughs> um, The luxury and, and to some degree advantage we have uh, being a new company yeah. is that you know most of the factories in certainly our category not just in Italy, but whoever's still making double guns around the world are, are factories that were started more than 50, 60 years ago. And when you, you know as anyone that's built a house or owned a house, you build a house or a building 60, 70, 80 years old, and you wire it and you plumb it and you put the roof on it and you buy you know, the fridge and the equipment you put inside of it, sooner or later that stuff gets a little threadbare and worn, right? And then it's this process of constantly trying to upgrade. And you never come in and rip out all the wiring, all the plumbing, you know, reinforce the structure, put on a new roof, put on a new exterior, and, and replace every piece of mechanical on the inside at one time. So yep. you could never have this blank sheet of paper. The only time you can do that is if you hire your contractor and build your house from brand new. Yep. Okay? Everything's going to be the state of the art. I'm going to have the best HVAC system. I'm going to have the best, you know, uh, quality materials, the best windows, the, you know, blah, 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 right down the line. And um, that's costly. You know, it's more costly than a remodeling. But the cool thing is at that point in time, we'll have the brand new best, you know, slickest stuff of everything. And uh, um, that's essentially the way we had to start by definition you know we didn't buy a company we started literally from nothing you know just hey you want to start a gun company today you know we're, we're stupid enough to try that <laughs> <laughs> so you know and in the beginning of a small company you have to start you know begging borrowing you know doing whatever you can you know just through ingenuity to get going and get rolling and and, and certainly um uh, relying on the good graces of people around you yeah. to, to to help you, and uh, uh, but as you get rolling and you start to build a new factory building and, and populate it with all brand new equipment, which we have done extensively now. The Greeny factory has just an amazing complement of CNC machines, and and all of them are. We didn't build the factory until what year, Georgia? Two thousand ten. No, what year did we buy a build? Anyhow, it doesn't matter. You know, Between so 2006. Six for the building. Okay, so the building was just finished in 2006. Yep. We didn't say, okay, now let's write a check for all the stuff inside. We Piece by piece, we were putting pieces in. And so the, the oldest piece of equipment yeah, we, we have. We bought another part of, in 2010, you're right. Yeah, so, but anyhow, all the equipment we have can't be older than 10 years, really, generally. Yep. Right? So it's all pretty modern. Most of it is 
I mean, we have two big components that are probably a week and a half old now. Yep. So um, what it leaves us with is really, as far as the, the equipment's capabilities, state of the art. And uh, the rest of it, and Giorgio's one of his favorite statements is that anybody can buy the equipment. You can buy the equipment. And, you know, guys in Turkey can buy the equipment. You know, they can do gun manufacturing. Sure. You can buy the equipment in China. You can do whatever. The equipment is the equipment. You know, it can make a widget. It can make a gun. It's all in the passion and the knowing what makes a real gun or the right gun and having the passion to, to just keep driving to get there. And uh, that's been our advantage that we have the clean sheet of paper. Uh, probably the hardest route you can go, but also the most uh, advantageous once you've gotten there. Yep. You know. What do you think is the biggest advantage your guns offer shooters? Well, that's a really broad question, right? Because we do every, we do so many things and we're in so many places. But what you're asking me to do is take everything and distill it down into some very general concepts of what do we get, right? And I think... I think one of the premises and the reason I tell people I like all guns, even if it's a $150 gun or it's a $100,000 gun, I really see the benefit in all of them. And there's all price points for all people and all levels of uh, engagement in a sport, right? So they're all good. It's more about what you give in value, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, in my mind, it could be ludicrous to say, you know, a $5,000 shotgun is a hell of a value. But it depends on what you're getting, yep. right? Yep. And for us, um, what we always strive to do is so many companies today are looking to cut costs so they can give you a cheaper gun and sell them in the big box stores and whatever they're doing. How can we remove some costs so we can make it for you cheaper? What we're trying to do, or the way we perceive things in our perspective and how we're completely different from all those companies that participate in that kind of, of marketplace is that when we look at a problem with a product, we say not what we can cut out of it and cost, but what we, could we add to it to make it that much better for around the same cost. So we go in the opposite direction. So if I had uh, a product, and I know this is kind of a long answer, but it's, it's, it's getting to the heart of it, right? So yep. if I have a product that's a standard gun and it's just not selling well enough because people are not... You know, they look at it and say, maybe it's not worth that money or it doesn't have the features I want or whatever. We look at it and say, all right, what do we have to do better? How can we make it, you know, uh, shoot better, look better, do whatever, you know, I mean, feel better. What do we have to do to make it better so that the value at that price point is there and now it's a marketable product? By going that route, we're always making our guns better, better, better. The last thing on the table that we discuss is cost. We start with the premise of what makes the gun better first, right? So, uh, you know, you got to temper that with not being a lunatic, but, you yep. know, you say, you know, can't make it out of unitanium, but, yep. you know, um, what we try to do is say, you know, what makes the best sporting gun that we're going to be able to make today? And we do this and that. We make lots of changes even nobody's requesting just because we think it's going to be cooler to have, yep. you know, this little detail or that little detail. And by doing that and continuing working in that direction, uh, it doesn't make us the cheapest product on the market, uh, but there's a tremendous amount of value in that product at that price point, you know. And the end benefit for us is every year our guns get better. 
And I've told many customers over many years now, the gun I'm about to sell you or you're about to buy from me today will be worse than the one you can buy from me next year this time. And that's a fact. Every, every single year we <laughs> make the guns, if you, we if make you, If you really want to be shocking, it's enough to bring uh, our gun of uh, 2002, then 2010, 2015, 2019, and 2020. And if you have a good eyes, you understand all the time the progression we did. Yeah. That if you catch one single progression, you don't pay attention. No, frankly speaking, but one plus one plus one plus one, at the end, you have a, a product in front of you that have no comparison. It's vastly different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you think about it from the gun appreciation. industry standpoint, right? Um, I'm going to name brands, but even American manufacturers, you can look at what they made in the 1970s or 80s, for example, or 70s. And everybody laments about this, you know, in the gun business. Boy, that XXY, whatever it was that they made in the 70s, is so much nicer than the one they make today. Yeah. Well, why is that? They right? cut cost, yeah. Because they're in this circular downward motion of trying to cut cost to, to be more competitive, to, to keep the, you know, uh, can you imagine if the car industry did that? You know that our cars. Yeah, you can buy you can buy a, a, a Ford F one fifty today for only five percent more than you could buy it in nineteen eighty four. But it's a piece of garbage, right? Yeah. Because at the, it's a good the analogy. people that sell for the motor, the, the the metal, the raw. I mean, the raw materials, right? The people that insure the company, the people that sell them their electricity, their, their, their employees are all making more. It's all going up 3 to 5% a year in general for manufacturing. And if you see a product that's not following along with that, you can make the assumption that that product is going down in quality X amount every so often, mm -hmm. right? Because that's just the way it works. Yep. You know, I can't make you something $10 today and have it go up 3 to 5%. My costs go up 3 to 5% every year and 10 years from now I'll charge you $11. Yeah. Yep. You know, it, it, and if you think that doesn't work, that's just, that's kind of like the law of physics, you know. Yep. So it's interesting that you mentioned about how your guns get better too. So, um, you know, so one of the things, you know, adding on, on top of what we've already mentioned about impressive about your guns are, so they're traditional in some ways, but they're also, uh, very cutting edge to me. They seem very, they're very technologically advanced and you're always pushing them and improving them. And you mentioned a lot about tolerances. You, you talked about heat treating before. Why should, a, if I'm a guy looking for a bird gun or a target gun, why does that matter to me? Well, to make an analogy, it's like, why uh, do I want to buy a tool that'll last or why? Did, when I think about it, I go through these kind of thoughts all the time. Like, you know, buying an electric rechargeable, you know, just a rechargeable drill. You know, do I want to buy the, the real low down discount one for out of Harbor Freight for, you know, 40 bucks? Or do I want to get one? Do I, I know I have to spend more, but I'll be getting more value out of the one that'll last me, you know, for many years, drill a better hole, drive a better screw, yep. you know, handle it in balance and all that. And, and, and so that goes back to that value ratio too, you know. Um, you can buy an over and under for 600 bucks, but probably 80% of uh, what you don't see is where you're losing out, right? Yep. So there's the parts you just don't understand because you can't visually see it. You have to be an expert to understand. 
some of that, you know. But I mean, in general, you can put, you, you you put them both right next to each other. Yeah, it, it becomes clear, you know, fairly clear. But um, it it is uh, one of those things that uh, you know uh, that that quality that you try to put in half of our business or half of our development is in technology. Half of it in, is in the artistic and the product. Uh, the end of product management, we're trying to get the kind of feel just right and to handle properly yep. and, and to think about what something beautiful feature could we industrialize to make this gun gorgeous that was something that was only handmade and all those other things. And, and that's where we spend uh, a tremendous amount of our time that I think separates us competitively from most other manufacturers inside of it. You know, we're not interested in making a gun. We're, we're traditionalists, so we're not interested in making a gun that kind of looks like a Star Wars blaster. Yep. You know, yep. uh, that's not our thing. You know, and if it is your thing, then, you know, I mean, there's people who do it, but it's not our thing. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on that's been a secret to our success also and uh, um, is, our qual- uh, is our customer service yep. has been a huge part of our business. And so what separates, why would you buy it? What separates this part? Sure, yeah, yeah. There's two point, points I want to talk about, customer service, but also the effort as, uh, but most of us being deeply engaged in shooting all our lives in, in the effort we put into how a gun handles, feels, and fits. And, and, I mean, we put the nth degree of, of uh, uh, care and, and design into this parts that doesn't show, but when you pick it up and you go, oh my God, that feels great, that's the response we're always going for on, mm-hmm. on that end. Customer service, was um, from having been in the industry, worked uh, for uh, a few other my, uh, firearm manufacturers, but, but also been a shooter and a consumer of firearms forever in my lifetime. Um, I realized that just like all other industries uh, across the world, customer service is one of those things that was getting vastly neglected. And we know that when we go everywhere from a restaurant to any other retail establishment, any other service or you know, contract, People don't seem to, to care to treat people the way they want to be treated. And as a, a company that Giorgio and I own, that uh, you know, uh, we have all of our life vested in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two things. One is on the customer service side. Why do we want to strive to get the best customer service from day one in the industry? Both on paper, but in in practice as well. Because yep. you can write any crap you want on paper, but you know, until yep. you until you walk the walk, you really are, haven't done customer service. Okay, so there are two things that we formulated our customer service, or two reasons or two philosophies uh, that we use to formulate our customer service program, which we strive to have the best. And, you know, a lot of customers, a lot of people in the industry think we have the best because one on paper, we have the strongest promise on paper, and that's all warranty is. is you know, listen, we're going to try it. Yeah, we were going to guarantee it for this, guarantee it for that. Then of the day, uh, manufacturers can kind of side slip a lot of that. You know, oh, you put a recoil pad on, so we're not going to. You know, you can do kind of cheesy stuff like that. But the reality of it is uh, because Giorgio and I are, are, are vested in this is something we've created. You know, uh, we're, we're personally so vested in it that our own personal feelings and ethics about how we treat people become a critical part of it. So we give the best customer service we possibly can because it's the way I'd want to be treated when I'm buying something. And when a customer puts 
so much trust in us to to produce a nice product and pays what I think you know is a, is a good amount of money to buy our product. Um, I think it's almost I hate to say it's sleazy not to fulfill the promise, and so we work and strive to do the best we can there, and that's a personal thing. On the other side, because so many uh, companies, not just fire, but across the board in all all sectors of manufacturing and service and everything else, uh, neglected in our society customer service. We saw it additionally as a tactical advantage. But you know the old joke about you know your bear hunting buddies. You don't have to run faster than a bear. Yeah, yeah. Faster than yeah. Uh, your, your buddies. buddies. Yeah. And so uh, we, there's this opportunity to do it a lot better, noticeably better. You know, we offer not only the lifetime warranty on Caesar Guarini, but additionally, we service every Caesar Guarini uh, for what we call our pit stop program. That's the, the name we use, but it's a full service on the gun, no charge. The customer just pays whatever shipping is, or if they're local, they can hand the gun off to us, and we do complete service overhaul of the whole gun, no yep. charge. And we've even, although it's not on paper, we normally extend that to secondhand guns all the time. You own it, you're part of the family is what we say. So, uh, you know, people are shocked that we say, well, you know, I'm, I'm the second owner, I'm the third owner. They admit that to us. And, and, and that's fun for me because I always say it doesn't matter. You're part of the family. You know, pit stops, no charge for you. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, we help them out. Why or how does that work? You know, people are so surprised by that point that we've made a real fan of the customer when we do things like that. Yeah. And so um, that's been a, a key point in uh, our overall strategy treat people well who would have thought it right Right. yeah yeah and that can be i mean i think a buddy of mine's got a he's got a caesar greeny and he hunts grouse a lot so his he had his gun sent in it must have been for the pit stop program i mean yeah refinish it i mean yeah. take a look at the wood and everything yeah we go through it mechanically yeah. and we clean them and you know the guys will uh you know because we use the oil finishes we'll put in on some extra oil yeah. uh if they gunsmiths notice something else you know damage on it from you know hitting it against you know they, they'll generally uh, contact the customer because customer also another thing is you can talk directly to the gunsmith that's working on your gun well, not yeah. someone in a cubicle the gunsmith can say uh, you know you have this or you have that you know we have a service we could re-blue something if you want you know, while it's here it's up to you our gunsmiths are not salesmen and they don't push services yep. and that's a key point I always make to them Don't we're not trying to sell you something but you know, if I put a big scratch down the side of my barrel or I let it rust or something like that, and it was already there, I might say, you know, it doesn't sound like a bunch of money. It's relatively yep. affordable. I, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll reblue it for me. That'd be great. I'm done. You know, so then that happens, you know, from time to time. Yep. There's two ways a company can approach customer service in general. Any company. You can treat it like a Ford dealership or car dealership. <laughs> Don't mean to pick off Ford. I love Ford. Got a Ford. Um, and you can look at it as a profit center, okay? So a lot of dealers will tell you, and a lot of people have heard it, they make more money off of servicing cars than they do selling. Mm. That's why they can sell them with $1,000. You know, yeah. After they sell a $45,000, $50,000 car, they put $1,000 in their pocket. It's chump change. doesn't matter because I'm going to, when I service this thing, I'm going to make a fortune. Right? <laughs> so um, a lot of companies will look at it as a profit center. Conversely, a company can look at it as a marketing tool, right? Or as a marketing advantage. So when a gun has a problem with it, which every mechanical object on the planet will eventually have, it's our opportunity to impress our customers, to show them we care, 
and to leave them with a better feeling than they had the day they bought the gun. And for us, that's the route we take. We put money into customer service instead of trying to make a buck off of customer service. And that's just a fact of any company cannot choose one of those two paths. There's a, there's a fork in the road. You can go right or left, you know, and, uh, it's much rarer to go our direction these days than it is to go. You want to talk about the Revenant, Greg? Yeah, I'm trying to figure. I'm kind of tired. Uh, <laughs> so why don't you tell me? So uh, the Revenant, you talked about how it was a uh, it was tradition plus a tour de force of technology. Okay, yeah, I'll try to make it simple because you know. So the uh, Revenant is your new, we should explain, it's like your new top of the, is it your top of the line game gun or is it your, how do you, so where do you position in your, in your offerings? It it is, it's probably our highest grade in uh, our Upland guns. The other gun I took close is the Forum, which is a conventional version, you know, and that's a factor of engraving and wood and some other features that we did. Uh, But the... The, the tradition part is the clearest first thing you'll see is it has a, uh, a, like a boss style forend on it, elongated tang on the forend. And uh, um, that has traditionally been only something, you know, quasi handmade. There was no one has industrialized anything like that. It would be a real pain in the butt to make that, you know, without, without using a lot of technology and some engineering tricks as well. Right. And and when you get that complicated, having wood and metal come together without a lot of fitting, is another really technically challenging thing. When they put that complicated forend iron and all that metal together with that intricately uh, uh, inleted piece of wood, there is no alteration allowed in assembly. Hmm. And uh, that's why the gun is not you know 100. Hundred thousand or eighty thousand. So yep. that brings up a great point. So I guess we should back up and say, this gun. So there's uh, how much hand work goes into this gun, or I guess how much hand assembly. Um, when you set out to design and construct the gun, your goal was to deliver, uh, I guess, the quality of, I mean, su- surpass the quality of a gun that costs ten times more. On a technical so, side, yes. So, so I guess so. What's like your vision standpoint. when you're when you're coming up with it? Yeah, it's 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 it, it, to 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 put it into a sentence uh, to take something traditionally beautiful. It's going to be more than one sentence, unfortunately. Um, to take something beautiful like that, you know, the highest level of the art form, you know, arguably yep. uh, in the aesthetics and the grace of the design and everything else. And uh, to industrialize it so that we could make something that we could manufacture uh, consistently at a price that would be completely unheard of. And to make it uh, infinitely more reliable because it's all, again, when you industrialize something, you have the advantage of not making one and trying to hand make parts. And you, we can have parts that are proven and you know all the engineering and metallurgy and testing that goes into it. So... Um, uh, and that's something we've tried to do throughout our, our, our history uh, of the company is to take these beautiful designs and see if we can can take the what have been the hallmark of the very best guns mm-hmm. and and, and uh, industrialize them into production so we can bring it to a much much wider audience than would have been yep. in the future and. Uh, 
Um, the, the complications on it continue. I mean, it's a rounded action, which means this is side plated around an action, which means that actual side blades have to be curved to match the rounded, you know, action. Yep. And that integrates with the wood that has to be curved. And it just goes the, the, the complicated stuff that has to go all together without hand fitting is uh, on a technical side. You know, it could look, you know, like a component for the space shuttle. But it's not. It's a. It's a. It's a component that that would have that kind of engineering that goes into something that's a hundred year old design. It's very classic. Yeah. Because there's a weird dichotomy between the two, of course, yep. right? Yep. But to have that all to come together, and, and you you can ask about what is hand made. Nothing is hand And 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 that's, that's a strength. Though. That's, that's a very counter thing to the people that find romance in double guns. Yep. Right. But explain that. I mean, you we talked. You mentioned this earlier. How. That is a that is sort of the tour. To, that's that's the technological leap you've made. That these guns are coming off. You're manufacturing them so well with the technology that they the hand fitting isn't required because the the parts are uh, so exact. The hand fitting is actually a sign of stuff not being as well made. Right. right. And well, and we can make serial number one four five six three two. Just like six three four or six three three, rather than yep, yep. six three four and six three five, mechanically fit and finish, they will be identical. Fit and finish will be absolutely consistent between the guns, you know. And the romance in buying something that's custom is you have the only one, right? Sure. The guy next to you can buy the same one, yep. you know. But like they say about custom boats, custom boats, you know, are custom problems, you know, because. <laughs> From a manufacturing standpoint, if you make a one-off every time, it's hard to get every one of them perfect, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's not to say we're perfect, but the, the, the chances of being super consistent about performance from a technical standpoint is infinitely better than trying to make things the other way. Yeah. And we rely on the skill of a craftsman that would have to be, you know, did I have a bad day today and do I not feel like actually making that part as well or... You know, whatever it, it takes, it does take a little bit of the human. It takes you know a bunch of the human uh, component out of it, but it, it ensures absolute consistency. And keeping that in conjunction in mind with the the fact that young people don't want to go into the the craft, into the to the, you know the years of, of apprenticing to try to get there. So it doesn't matter if you want it. You have two choices. You can have eventually. You can have it done our way or no way, you know, unless people decide they want to go into a fairly arcane type of industry of mm -hmm. producing things by hand for the, for a very complicated thing. I don't like, I, I like handmade things too, of course, yeah. just like everyone else. I'm, yeah. I'm not anti in any way, but uh, unless there was a big turnaround in what young people's interest, you know, would be uh, as far as manufacturing and craftsmen and, and, and the hand, working uh, with hand tools and stuff. It's, uh, it's something that uh, there's not an alternative, really, in my eyes. Yeah. And, and when I say not alternative, okay, so, you know, not alternative in 10 years, 5 years, 15 years. I don't know what that, that horizon looks like exactly, but it sure has contracted. Yep. <laughs> and even Giorgio can tell you in the valley there where it's a the whole culture is gone. I mean, kids are going to Milan to go into the tech business. You know, or whatever they still want. Well, if they get really technical, they can maybe come back and work for you guys someday. Well, 
so the, the, the jobs, it's not we can eliminate jobs. We actually created different jobs. Right. You know, yeah. the engineering, the machining, the, there's other things that we do that didn't exist before. So it's not like you eliminated. There is some shift in, in mm-hmm. the, the skill sets. You know, it's not, it's not, it, it's, it's a change as much as an elimination. It's more of a change than it is elimination. Yeah. Does it allow us to manufacture with yeah. fewer people? Yeah, it probably does for sure. There are in any case a part of handmade uh, because, for example, when you fill up, when, uh, when you file the wood so close to the Mitchell, the wood is not like the Mitchell, for example. No, it's when, when it's polished and oiled, change a little bit the tolerances. Yeah, so what Georgia is saying is the tolerances are so tight, the the one thing they have to do, and this is a hand process technically, is when we do oil finish and we put it on the stock, if the oil gets on the inletting surfaces that the assembly technician needs to take a little Oh, so where the wood, the wood, oh, yeah, they need to remove the oil finish off it's, of the, it's the, 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 the the mating surfaces because yeah. a, a, a a drop of you know a, a little layer of layer oil or a little hump of oil in there, like a little drop that solidifies, could it's, actually create a pressure point. Especially you know? very nice piece of wood, yeah. more than the standard production wood. Yeah. Yeah. Or, for example, polishing uh, an after case hardening frame. It's not like to polish in the summit or or, or, or uh, also an Invictus. There you have to respect totally the background of the frame. You have to polish by hand with a very fine sand of paper, rigid sand of paper. You have to double check everything you touch. So it's true that it's very perfect industrialized, but from a aesthetically point of view and from the the very end touch has to be b- made by hand and with the eyes open like this. Eh? Otherwise, you do not have the same result. Yeah. The final part, the polishing on the outside of the yep. action. Well, it's, anytime we get open to the high grades, you know, you better make sure you don't have any marks on anything. And, you know, the engraver's the same. Gun goes to the engraver. The gun does have a reasonable amount of hand engraving that goes into it. And the hand engraving accentuates the mechanical engraving or the, the yep. neutralized engraving and that's the best way to get that final nth degree that is convincing about the engraving for sure yeah and that's what we, we talked earlier about you know the giovanelli and the engraving house their secret is combining this stuff right yep three-dimensional laser with a with hand engraving yeah super high technology super low technology but the, when you mix the two you can get a really good, convincing, absolute result, you know, by the combination of them. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people have probably seen laser engraving that doesn't look good. So then, when you hear you hear laser engraving on Caesar Greenies, but if you look at a Caesar Greenie, it's there's clearly something different about well, it. Well, a laser used poorly, yeah, it's not great for everything. Yep. So a laser is just another tool. You use it for the wrong things, and it comes out horrible. Sure. You know, uh, if you use a laser for the proper yeah, and that's that's a secret in anything, right? But you use you use the laser correctly, you use other processes correctly, it comes out beautiful. And and especially if you use just the laser, you cannot absolutely have a touch, the hand touch. Even though you use the best of the top one three dimensional, no, absolutely not. Some company propose and promote a beautiful engraving made by la three dimensional laser engraving. 
for us it's almost does no science because the three-dimensional laser engraving is a three-dimensional laser engraving that can create the three dimension for sure but all of the frame all the engraving will be the same completely different uh, situation flat by the time you get yeah. done looking completely at it you look at it and it looks a little bit like a cartoon representation of hand engraving right yeah. so different option is when you have a three-dimensional engraving you retouch by hand with the bullino or with the, some different tools from the engraver. The, yeah. And it gets complicated because I don't want to get too far into it, but a laser burns metal in general, right? So, and a, and a cutter can cut a fine, sharp line where a laser is not specifically great at cutting a very delicate, sharp line because it's burning metal again. Yeah. And that's where, okay, so if it's not good at doing that, so where we need that, we're going to go back and we'll cut that by hand. No problem. You know, and we add that into it. And it adds, you know, that's certainly that adds to the cost of the gun for sure. Yeah. Probably more than the, the, the some of the other components of the engraving. But it's the part that makes it legit. Yeah. Uh, if any if anybody listening has not seen the Revenant, I highly encourage them to go check it out. The engraving is probably one of the first things you'll notice. It's certainly one of the first things that I noticed. But you you did give a good example earlier in that you were talking about the master engraver that did the design, right? And you asked, once it was complete, you asked him, what would this cost to do by hand? And he, he basically put it into perspective in what way, Wes? Yeah, there was a writer that asked him the question. He was standing next to me. He said, this revenant, he said, uh, how much would this cost you? And we had that question a lot. How much yeah. would it cost you to do this by hand? And the general manager of Giovanelli uh, just looked at him and his answer, and kind of broken English was, Ten times as much and not as good. Yeah. You know, and that's right from the guy that's doing it. Yeah. You know, and uh, for me, that was kind of a cool answer. But, you know, I, mean, I thought that was neat to hear the guy that does it talk about it. And engraving's a fascinating subject, too, because, in essence, they could probably surpass hand engraving if they really wanted to. But because they're engraving school, are the company that we deal with, which is, I think, the world leader, they have to almost govern it a little bit. You know, because you could wreck the tradition of hand engraving to some degree. They they have are totally invested in that. Yeah. You know, because they teach a large quantity of the master engravers, and you know, if you start making it so automated that the hand engraver couldn't keep up at all, even though it might be capable, it might be possible. Yeah. You could literally. You'd lose. Do it. So, yeah. Mr. Giovanelli self-governs that little bit he, he kind of tops it out and says that's the end and the revenant is the highest expression they've done and uh i'm not so sure he was uh, completely happy with that because i think he pushed the line for him a little bit yeah uh and i see it i understand that you know because the beauty it's 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 hand engraving is artwork yeah you don't lose simple. the artistry there's no way to debate that and to to discourage artists would not be a good thing yeah because at the end of the day so artists that created that before it was done. Correct. So that whole design took 50 studies by by the general manager himself. I mean, he has a, stat, a stack of papers that were all studies of every component of the gun before it could even be you know, digitized, and then the process could start. Yeah. And if that guy doesn't exist or that person doesn't exist, forget it. It's the end of the road. Yeah. Okay. Anything else on the Revenant? No, I'm good. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. It's a the, great gun. You guys did tell us today that there will be a 28 gauge. It's currently only available in 20 gauge, but 28 gauge is on the way. So this year, yeah. 
Yeah, this year, so 2020. Everybody listening to this, when they go to sleep tonight, they can have something to dream about, 28-gauge <laughs> revenant. <laughs> so is that all scaled down, a true 28-gauge? So we're, we're making that gun so that uh, because we sell so many combo sets and, and the frame is very swell to begin with, that uh, it's going to be, you can have it on the same action. Same you know, when it's done as a 28-gauge, we will look at it and say, you know, you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to say it's not a 28-gauge. But it's very critical for us because so many shooters want to have a two-barrel set. Why so is that? Why are they looking for that? They just, just want, want the variety. Yeah, they love it. I mean, if I'm going to invest that much in it, yeah. you know, so many guys that shoot 20 love 28. I'm a big fan of 28, too. Mm-hmm. But then they, on the other hand, they say, well, I'd really like to have 20 for Phasma or you know, whatever, yeah. whatever the yeah. subject is. But the, the easy solution is you have, you have a gun that you picked and it has a piece of wood on it that you love and everything else. The, to have the variety of having a two-barrel sets. And two-barrel sets are cool. You know, I mean, they're really, if they're done right, mm-hmm. you know, doing, uh, especially two gauges, like 20 and 28 always works out really well because the size of the frames are so close, right? Because the gauges are not radically, not, you know, like other jumps between the two. Mm-hmm. You do, you know, 410 becomes more of an issue, you know, but, but if the two are, are close enough in scale, the final product is really nice and the ability to have, you know, a multi-gauge set is uh, surprisingly yeah. popular. You know, That's great. Yeah. And a big part of our sales uh, when we talk about our small gauge bird guns uh, are actually combo sets. The other thing we always do for our customers is we always offer to, and we always stock the additional gauge barrels on our standard guns. So if you have a 20 and you wanted a 28 or you had a 28 and you want a 410, whatever the combination there, within the small gauges, uh, we uh, uh, will sell a customer the, the second gauge five years from now if you want, right? So, uh, and that's popular in both ways buying it as the original package and secondary barrel sales because we're known for keeping them in inventory and actually doing it all the time mm-hmm. you know where other companies don't want to deal with it um and so for us it's a popular thing yeah you know you can choose to go either route right but for us to make it accessible and to have all the options this is the way to give people the most opportunities uh, if you were looking for a scaled 410 and everything, I mean, it's just, you, you, you can say there's pluses and minuses, but uh, from the shootability and from the, the final look, there are guns out on the rack uh, today that we utilize that, you know, one of the guys picked up Giorgio's 20 Evo round body. Uh, he was shooting a 28. He didn't know the difference between the two, you yep. know, right? I mean, it's that close. We do a good yep. 28, 28. We scale it scaled so that it works well. Mm-hmm certain combinations and certain guns and it doesn't work well because it just looks like two little barrels hanging out of a big gun mm-hmm. sure you know like a 2012 combo though yeah we scale we scale the whole four end you know it's not just uh, i mean the, the whole thing is scaled down to so the whole lines of the gun look right yep. you know? okay so you got to put that detail in so it's not it's not just a 20 and you're slapping 28 gauge barrels the whole four end is always when we do a small gauge we add the whole front of the gun is new Gotcha. Okay. The iron, the the because it all has to be tapered and and scaled in that way. So it's semi-scaled. Yep. I guess. You yeah. say, right. Uh, if you want to create a new term, but um, it's it's done so that the final result is good. You know, it's uh, like in a target business, they don't want a scaled frame for anything because it doesn't shoot as well as the. You know, it's it's a harder gun to shoot. Of course, the smaller you scale down a gun, yep. the more difficult it becomes to shoot. You know, well, 
Oh, really? So they want they they don't. Whippy, there's no way to it's a little. You know, I mean. Sure, I see what you're saying. Target shooter would never want and accept a small scale 28 gauge, for example. And I can see just moving around, like switching guns. Becomes too small for people. Bottom bottom lines, it's too tiny. You know, it's too light. It's all muscle movement instead of any kind of moment of inertia. Mm. You know, the gun doesn't have any smoothness to it. Difficult gun to shoot when you scale them down like that. They're beautiful things. I'll yep. be the first one to tell you that too. I agree. You know, a little scaled 410 is a crazy thing to look at, but a difficult thing to shoot. Well, plain and simple. Yeah. You know. So again, pluses minus. I'm not, you know, an advocate for generally any approach. I think they're all the approaches are good, but that's the way we do it. Yeah, we've definitely covered a lot of foundational ground with Caesar Greeny, and and before we wrap this up, I want to just. I want to not forget about the fact that we've got a lot of upland bird hunters listening to this. And I want to talk, I want you to just talk briefly Then we don't have to get into the details of every gun, but specifically if we could hit the Caesar Guarini fab arm and siren, what are the guns that if an upland bird hunter calls you say, Hey, I, I hunt upland birds primarily. I'm really interested in what you guys are offering. What, what are you going to tell them to look at? I always have, because we offer such a wide variety yep. of product, yep. I always have a personal conversation. If I'm the one they're talking to, yep. right? And I hope, you know, all the people in our sales you know, department, people they talk to internally have the same conversation. Because as an avid bird hunter, and most of, the people, most of my gunsmiths are all avid bird hunters, a lot of our salespeople are all, we play the same game as you do. Yep. Uh, and we love it dearly. I mean, that's that's our passion. And... Um, so I have a usually a pretty in depth conversation with them. Where yeah. you're shooting, where are you shooting? You know, where you, are you up in the you know up in the hills? Or you're out in the open. Or are you shooting? You know, what are you doing and how you're doing it? And then from there, I, I'll generally go back and you know when a customer I'm talking about Caesar Greeny, I usually keep it encapsulated to Caesar Greeny or Fabron because these are different brands, but the process Absolutely. is the same, yep. right? And so my first and major concern is I, I talk about the configuration. Do you want to? Do you have a need, or do you really have a desire to have a very light gun? Do you want a five and a half pound twenty gauge? You know, and if so, okay, here's some of your options. Where I, I back away from that whole conversation is when it comes to um, like grades of gun, because that's like choosing the artwork yes. a little bit, yeah. right? So uh, I'll talk about barrel lengths. I'll ask you, you know, figure out. I want to know how big you are. Because that could determine how long I would like to see the barrels on your gun, really. So Because you're going to have a certain length stock, which adds weight to the back of the gun. So I'd love to see the gun bounce perfectly for you. So it really felt like that magical feel. And so I want that. Um, I, I give advice on, uh, you know, gauges and every the basic yep. stuff, too. But I want it to fit you well. I want it to handle beautifully. Those are the two critical things. And... Normally, once we get done that, you then probably have multiple options in how the gun is engraved or the grade of wood you want or, you know, so we, you got plenty of layers there to go out and choose. I can't advise you. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Right? So if we start talking about, you know, I'm a grouse hunter from New England, right, for example. Yep. And uh, I hunt really thick cover. And I hunt birds that have a lot of pressure, so they're flighty as hell. And uh, I need to do a lot of fast shooting. And, by the way, I hunt hard all day long. I mean, I'm in the thick of it, up and down the hills through covers, and I, I, I really get after it. Okay, so, you know, let's, let's talk about some of the gauge options. Probably 20 is going to be the one that 
is be the most popular in what you're doing. It's certainly going to get the job done. You want to get really sporty. We can talk about 28. Yeah. You know, you, you feel like you have to have a 12. You can do that. But but then I'm going to, you know, and, and I'm six foot two. All right. Well, you know, it might surprise you, but I might even steer you into a 30-inch barrel because your stock's going to be a little longer. Two inches is really not the end of the world as far as being maneuverable in tight cover. So there's some surprising things a lot of bird hunters wouldn't think about. Yep. And, uh, or, you know, 28, which is kind of the bread and butter length. And uh, maybe you need to go with one of the alloy light frame guns. If you really get after it, you know, saving that extra pound might be something you, you really, you know, is advantageous for you. Yep. You know, once we get through those issues, uh, that'll narrow down your choices significantly. You know, there's a round body of standard action. That could be a choice, but then it's just great, you know. Would you like something that's, you know, really extraordinary with a lot of engraving and really nice, you know, uh, walnut? Or, you know, are you looking for something that's just classic, clean, you know, beautiful, but understated? Is that your, you know... Get the job done. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, but yeah, just a nice, you know, kind of... Not gaudier, but just you like that, that very conservative. New England's kind of famous for that once the, you know, the... Then we have some options there as well. Yep. You know, it's cool. a simple process. And yep. at the end of the day, a shooter or a hunter needs to also pick what they believe in. Yep. So I'll give you the advice. I'll show you the, you know, what the best options. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that advice. But at the end of the day, you got to love what you buy. I want you to love our product. So you have to make some personal choices as well. Any final thoughts, Greg? No, I'm great. That's good. Giorgio, anything you want the listeners to know about Caesar Guarini and the cool stuff you guys do? <laughs> I think that Wes took it for a, a while. <laughs> and there is no I other. seem to have gotten a bad reputation for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And we have a lot of people is waiting for us. Yeah. For appetizer yeah. Uh, and dinner. Yeah. So. They probably yeah. had all the quail. There's probably quail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. we'll we missed the more. quail tonight. Yeah. No, thank you for, for coming here. No, we really Thank enjoyed, you for having me. We enjoyed yeah. talking yeah. with you guys you about much. it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll yeah. possibly we'll go in the future some more. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very broad subject. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Thanks uh, for having Greg and I and entertaining us with this conversation. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of the Project Up Podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Everybody go check out Caesar Greeny. That's it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. Quick reminder, the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonubo Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, CZ USA, Turnbull Restoration, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget, you could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is leave us a rating. Leave the podcast a review in your podcast app, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, or send us some feedback or guest suggestion. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. yourself podcast if you enjoyed this show then you might want to check out my show as well we highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog 
Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gun Doggy Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.